0: 1961, during the Cold War, the CIA had an idea to eavesdrop on enemies, find a way to listen in on conversations, gather intelligence, as the CIA would be interested in doing. And one of the projects focused on this was called the Acoustic Kitty Project. The idea behind Acoustic Kitty was to use cats as a mobile and discreet eavesdropping tool. The way they would do this is they would surgically implant listening devices into the cats, let the cats wander, or at least hopefully you could direct them to where you wanted to go, and uh, nobody would suspect the cat, I guess, and then they would be able to listen in on the conversation. Turns out that Acoustic Kitty project did not work out. Uh, It eventually got abandoned. There was difficulty in training the cats to actually follow specific orders. They did test it in a few urban environments, like parks. But they just... uh, didn't have enough success to get Acoustic Kitty off the ground as a Cold War tactic. But there's another one called Project X-Ray. This was initiated by the National Defense Research Committee, the NDRC. This is 1942, World War II, fighting Japan. And the idea behind Project X-Ray was to turn bats into incendiary devices and drop them over Japan. So you strap bombs to a bunch of bats, you'd release thousands of bats over Japan, and they would do their damage. Turns out that didn't really work out either. The bats didn't behave as expected. I guess it's hard to direct bats to do what you want them to do. And that project eventually got canceled. Then there's Project Fantasia. This was initiated by the OSS. This is like a precursor to the CIA. This is 1943, another example of fighting Japan, trying to come up with ideas. The idea here behind Project Fantasia was to drop fox-shaped balloons over Japan or paint a bunch of foxes with fluorescent paint and have them run amok within Japan. Now. You're obviously wondering why, unless you've heard of this project before, you would use anything to do with a fox to try to scare people. This was essentially a psyops operation, and during that time, 1943, Shintoism was still the official kind of state religion of Japan, and apparently foxes are a major symbol of that religion. And so they figured, the OSS, that if you released a bunch of foxes, either balloons or painted ones that were glowing or floating down, that it would just kind of ruin the morale of the people, they would get freaked out, they would think it has something to do with Shintoism, and uh, and maybe that would help them win the war. So that project never really got off the ground either, although they were considering it. Um, The war ended before they could do much with it. Then there's Project Blue Peacock by the British military. This is 1950s, Cold War. The idea behind Blue Peacock was to bury nuclear devices, basically nuclear bombs, as landmines, so nuclear landmines. This is by the British military. So this is, uh, you, you would do it in West Germany, and the idea was that you've got this potential Soviet invasion, and so if you had landmines that were nuclear, this would be a great defense. But what made Blue Peacock so interesting was that they wanted to, well, it's, it's one of the challenges in putting a nuclear weapon into the ground, I guess in this area of the world, is that they get really cooled. And if those nuclear weapons get really cold, the detonators or certain parts of the circuitry, the mechanisms aren't going to work, or there's a chance that they don't work, so they're not that reliable. So you have to find a way to keep them warm. And so Project Blue Peacock said, or uh, decided that they would use chickens to keep the detonators warm. So they would literally, the idea was to, to let chickens be down there with the nuclear weapons. They'd be within kind of the mechanism piece. They would roost and they would give off body heat. And that would be a way to keep the uh, the mechanisms of these nuclear bombs warm. Warm enough so that they would detonate reliably. Uh, that didn't really happen. There was practical and ethical concerns about using chickens with uh, nuclear weapons. So that project just kind of fizzled out. Then there's Project Habakkuk. This is uh, Geoffrey Pike in the British Admiralty. Uh, the idea behind Project Habakkuk was to build aircraft carriers from ice and wood pulp so you look at you know icebergs and they're floating out there they float really well they're kind of tough so why not build aircraft carriers out of it the wood pulp they used was a a compound called picrete. just think of it like a bunch of mushed up newspaper basically you mix it with ice and that the ice tends to stay frozen a lot longer kind of like when you have dirt in in ice if you ever see on the side of the road it takes forever to melt and it's also bulletproof. They actually did tests on this. You mix the ice with a wood pulp, you can shoot bullets out at it, doesn't do much damage. This is 1942, World War II. They were thinking of building aircraft carriers of ice. This was actually tested at Patricia Lake and uh, a little bit at Lake Louise as well in Canada, around the Jasper Park area. And uh, why did this one not get off the ground? Well, mass-producing picrete apparently is kind of impossible or just really, really difficult. It just was, it, it's hard to scale up the process. So even though they built, like, miniature versions of these aircraft carriers, I guess, out of ice, uh, and they were bulletproof, and they floated well, it seemed actually, you know, it was feasible, but to mass-produce the piker you needed to get the size of the aircraft carriers, it just wasn't going to happen. And I think the walls would have had to been, like, 34 feet thick or something like this to, you know, defend against, uh, I I don't know, torpedoes or the bombs that are coming in. So Project Habakkuk was a no-go. That one fizzled out as well. There's also Project Orion. This is physicist Theodore Taylor and Stanislaw Ulam from the General Atomics Company. What was uh, Project Orion? Well, the idea here was you would have spacecraft powered by nuclear pulse propulsion. What does that mean? Well, you would actually essentially drop nuclear bombs behind the spacecraft. And they would explode, and then you would kind of ride the wave forward. So you would have this... um, You know, the shockwave come from the nuclear explosion. Then you'd have something called a pusher plate that would sit, I guess, on the the, the spacecraft. And so the pusher plate would, you know, essentially take in that impact and then turn that into momentum. And if you just kept dropping nuclear bombs behind you and detonating them, you could keep riding those shockwaves forward. You would increase speed. And so that's the idea behind nuclear pulse propulsion. This is late 50s, early 60s. Uh, why did that not get off the drawing board? And Well, too controversial to face political, environmental, and safety concerns, or it was likely to. And so that was just cancelled. They didn't think that was going to, to be a good thing. They thought it was feasible. Um, but just too hard to get the public to agree with, I guess, dropping a bunch of nukes behind a rocket and just setting them off so you could go higher and higher and faster and faster. Then there's Project A119. This is the United States Air Force uh, force with physicist Leonard Raefel. The idea here was to detonate a nuclear bomb on the moon. This is late 50s, the space race, the Cold War. Uh, So you would just send a spacecraft up to the moon, you drop a nuclear device, you would detonate it, and it wouldn't really explode the way it does on Earth where you have a big mushroom cloud because the reason mushroom clouds form is because you have the atmosphere and after the explosion happens initially, then you kind of backfill that space with all the heavy atmospheric gases. And that just tends to kind of shape the plume as a mushroom. But, of course, on the moon, you don't really have much of an atmosphere at all. And so the whole thing would just kind of blow out. Uh, they wanted to do it. In fact, even Carl Sagan thought it was a good idea. The Carl Sagan. Um, for scientific purposes. He thought maybe this would be a great way to find microbes and other minerals and stuff. Um, and, and, but I think United States Air Force was kind of doing it just for the purpose of, you know, again, this is the space race. Cold War It would show, look what we can do. <laughs> We can detonate a nuke on the moon, isn't that great? But this didn't get off the drawing board either. Why? There was potential for negative public reaction, environmental impact, and things like this. So all those examples I gave were uh, projects that were serious, done by serious people, intelligent people, uh, agencies like the CIA, the OSS, you know, the National De- uh, Defense Research Committee. And they're in times where, that are really pressing, you know, the Cold War, World War II, You've got an enemy, you've got to come up with these ideas. Um, but if you look at these ideas, they seem pretty ridiculous, right, in hindsight. And in fact, they're hard to imagine that intelligent people, the best of the best, we really take them seriously. We're talking about strapping bombs to a bunch of bats and letting them fly over Japan. We're talking about uh, embedding uh, eavesdropping devices inside, inside felines and using that as, a, as an eavesdropping device. You know, uh, releasing fox balloons or painted foxes. Putting a bunch of chickens in with the nuclear weapons just so that they stay warm. Building aircraft carriers out of ice. Dropping nukes out of the back of your spacecraft just so it can propel itself forward. Or trying to nuke a part of the moon to show that you've got, you know, I guess military sophistication and perhaps for some scientific purposes. They seem pretty ridiculous. But, you know, many of today's inventions were deemed absurd at the time, too, right? Hindsight, of course, is twenty twenty. You take the things that we look at today, automobiles, airplanes, personal computers, I mean, the automobile had all kinds of skepticism facing it. It might seem obvious now, but if you've got horse-drawn carriage, and that's the way it's been for so long, and someone says, well, you know what, we're going to put this steam or maybe this combustible material inside this metal thing, and it's going to turn this crank automatically, I mean, this thing is noisy, it stinks, it's polluting. And, and you're basically, you know, iteratively exploding something in order to make a thing go forward. I mean, if you came forward with that idea, it would seem pretty ridiculous and, and unsafe. And so you'd have all kinds of skepticism, which there was for something like automobiles. Airplanes. I mean, imagine how ridiculous that idea sounded at the time, right? Humans don't fly. We don't go in the air. And, uh, and now you're going to tell me you're going to build something that gets up into the sky, stays up in the sky. And not even just for recreational use, we're actually going to put maybe, you know, one day hundreds of people on these things, and that's how they're going to get from city to city. They're going to fly all across the earth in these metal buckets with these wings sticking out that kind of look like birds, and they're going to fly around the planet. How many of you would have taken that idea seriously? Personal computers. I mean, computers at the time were, you know, back in the day, you know, think about the 50s and that, where they, they took up the whole room. And they were massive noisy things, and then someone starts to kind of shrink it down. And it's kind of this esoteric machine that does calculations. And then you say, well, you know what? I think I think there's going to be a personal computer in every home one day. Well, <laughs> I mean, that would just, it would just seem ridiculous. It'd be like saying everyone's going to have an MRI in their house someday or something. It just doesn't make sense. It's this big machine. It's this esoteric niche thing. Why would everybody use this calculating thing, right? Smartphones, you know, thinking that's not that long ago, but. The idea that this one device would be your camera, your note taker, you know, your telephone, um, your video camera, right? All these things that were separate devices up until that point is all going to fit in your pocket. You know, even if it were possible technologically, you wouldn't think that people would necessarily be okay with just using one thing for that. You know, how good would the video camera be? Why would I want to use everything on one thing? The internet, right? The light bulb, social media, putting your personal information out there. Um, You know, why would people just want to talk about themselves? Don't they want their privacy? When All of these, in hindsight, now we can say, well, they, maybe you still don't think they're all great ideas. But, you know, yeah, they, they seem smart. I mean, look how successful they were. But at the time, they're not that less absurd than strapping bombs to bats or putting chickens in with a bunch of nukes. I mean, they're kind of crazy ideas. So what does that tell us? Well, you know, we always do this. Right? We do this hindsight and then we think we know what makes for a good idea. If Someone tells you something, you know, maybe they're an entrepreneur, they got some crazy idea or they're working on something and it, and it doesn't align to the way things are. It doesn't align to the status quo, the system, the things that we think make the world tick. Then we just think it's crazy. We think it's absurd, right? But I think what this tells us is that we need to have a lot of bad ideas to land on good ones. You know, if you got the CIA and all these intelligence agencies, organizations, the Navy, whatever, you know, looking for the best of the best, and of course, a lot of their ideas did work out as well, but they're entertaining ideas like strapping bombs to bats or putting chickens in with nukes. I mean, I think it shows you, right, the art of what it takes to come up with a good idea, it's not about a bunch of sophisticated thinking necessarily. Maybe it gets to that point later on, but what it's really about is just trying many, many attempts. You have to have a lot of ideas. You have to have a lot of what will later be considered bad ideas. We resolve life challenges by making those challenges tractable. We have to ha- they have to converge to a solution, and it's it's a massive possibility space that you have to venture through and none of us know how to do that other than just to keep trying especially during the early stages and so you got to be really comfortable with coming up with all kinds of ideas you know we're raised in the education system to think that things kind of exist in isolation right the scientific method or the enlightenment tells us to isolate extract define things very precisely But in doing that, we forget just how much connective tissue exists between all the things we do. Coming up with those bad ideas is absolutely critical to eventually land on the ones that turn out to be good. The ones that turn out to be good are in the same pool as bad ideas. And most people will actually think they're probably bad. You might even think they're not that great. But you got to make the attempt and you got to let the natural forces of nature and connectivity allow the good things to precipitate out over time, allow you to. Observe what is invariant and what will survive. Because what you need is ultimately emergent. It's not coming from those so-called enlightened ideas where you narrow in on something and now you know the very specifics. That's not where good things come from. Good things come from the abstract. They come at the high level. They come at the level where many of those details subsume into higher level categories. And so you, don't, you, you do not have to muck around with a bunch of details, but you can't put too much emphasis on any of them especially at the early stages. The slow analytical thinking that we're taught to do in school, especially if you're in the hard sciences and stuff like this, but not, but not even schooling and just science. I mean, that for sure, but just the way we're growing, the, the, the way reality is presented to us, right? As though it's more rigorous, as though it's more precise and correct to, to be analytical and to slow down. Now, the reality is you got to breathe life into your work. You got to immerse yourself in the mess Until things that are promising start to come up, we have to base life's decisions on the properties that we know work under complexity, and the properties that work under under complexity, under real life are things like trying a lot of different options, iterating many, many times, and trying to just select the best pieces forward. So that's all true. That we need to have a lot of bad ideas in order to land on good ones. That we should be more concerned with taking the shots than landing the shots. And this kind of has to be where you rest your contentment and your security. This, this has to be where your confidence comes from, not from knowing the answer, not from doing something super specific or thinking your idea is the best one, whether it's your business or the team you're running, something smaller, something bigger, right? Whatever it is in your life, it's, You know, no one thing you're doing should be really taken that seriously, but the process should be taken seriously. Process of iterating, the process of bringing in lots of variety and looking for conversations instead of answers. Stop trying to define things. Stop trying to be epic. Just tap into the variety. Have all kinds of bad ideas because you're going to toss things as you go and you're going to keep the best parts. And whatever precipitates out at the end, if you had had that idea, a month ago, a year ago, five, ten years ago, and you had just said it to yourself or to others, it probably would have seemed like a dumb idea. There would have been all kinds of things that just didn't necessarily map to the way the world is today, or they would have sounded naive, or it wouldn't have been obvious how the different pieces would come together to make that happen. But that's reality. So look, history is loaded with all kinds of bad ideas, dumb ideas, go look at patents, look at how many stupid things are out there. You know, but that's all hindsight. You know, you got the best of the best that are coming up with acoustic kitties project x-rays project fantasias blue peacock habakkuk and orion and a119 you know all these crazy things that just in hindsight are like what what you know i mean these are smart people coming up with this stuff but that's what it takes and if you think in your own life and you just look back at all the different ideas take a project you're working on or just your life writ large Some of the things that you thought of in the past and now with with more information and and being able to observe what is successful, you look back and you think, oh, that was ridiculous. Why was I thinking that? But you had to think that or do that. You had to do those things. You had to make those mistakes. Many of today's inventions, all of them really, were likely deemed quite absurd at the time. There probably isn't anything that's quite useful today that when it was first started, had all kinds of support behind it. You know, not really. It was probably kind of crazy. We need to have all kinds of bad ideas to land on the good ones. And so we got to be less concerned with, with, you know, landing the specific shot that we've defined. And we think we, ha- we, we think we know, we think we understand, which of course we don't. And more concerned with just taking the shots you know, it's kind of like, as an example, rapid-fire photography, right? You know, you could try to find the right place and be really patient and wait, and then when the moment comes, you're going to get the shot. But let's say you only had, you know, a couple shots in your film on your camera. doesn't matter how long you wait. (laughs) There's a good chance you're not going to get that shot. In fact, the only way to kind of help guarantee a shot is to keep going to keep going to that same place maybe every day. Or, Now that we have digital cameras to just take rapid shots. So as soon as anything enters the scene, shoot, 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 right? You can do this with your phone. You can do, you know, because digital photography is cheap because only one of those has to work. And you can just easily toss the other ones away. And that's, that's much more real life. That's what it is, right? Life is informational like that. All kinds of ideas can come and go. You know, Wayne Gretzky, famous NHL player back in the day, he's got that famous quote you miss 100% of the shots you don't take, right? It's a good one. It's true. You know, you can spend time thinking about your ideas, spend time fantasizing about what you want to be, what you want to do, what you want to build. You can hold on to your idea really tight because you think it's so wonderful. You think it's going to be epic and there's a good chance you just never do it. Or... You finally get around to doing it, but because you put all your effort into just that one thing, now it's naive, it's disconnected from the real world, it hasn't been informed, it hasn't iterated, it hasn't tapped into variety, it hasn't been fed by the feedback of your environment. It hasn't moved forward through constant iteration. It just grew a little bit out of your naive one, so-called epic idea, and then it just died because it wasn't fed. You have to be more concerned with taking the shots than landing the shots. Okay, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. Until the next one, take care.